Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. For those of you who've been coming over the last few weeks, uh, we've been in the book of Colossians. A number of weeks ago, I decided I'd do a book study through uh, the book of Colossians. Never even got close. I uh, haven't even got out of the first chapter, and we're in week three of a four-week series. So very early on in the piece, I realised this was going to be a, a few messages out of the book of Colossians and not a book study. In, in the first message, I did do uh, an overview of the epistle, and we talked about how um, Paul is writing to the Colossians to try and head off some heresy that had been developing. And the heresy basically was a group of teachers who were saying to the church at Colossae, yeah, what you've got is good, but if you want fullness and freedom, there is something extra. It's always the appeal to the elite. It's the appeal to to pride. And Paul, in the strongest possible terms, is saying to the Colossians, there's nothing beyond Jesus. When somebody comes to you and tells you fullness and freedom lie beyond him, you know that they're not telling you the truth. And as the ancients would say, knee plus ultra, there's nothing beyond. There's nothing beyond Christ. That was the essential message of the epistle. Last week we looked at the role of hope. Um, Right in the beginning of Colossians, Paul mentions that famous triad of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. And last week I highlighted hope. The message I want to delve into this morning is based on the prayer that Paul prays over the Colossians. In the very first verses, he spills over into prayer. And I want to read that prayer to you. So Colossians chapter 1 verse 3, I'm reading from the J.B. Phillips version. It says, I want you to know by this letter that we, are, that we here are constantly praying for you. And whenever we do, we thank God, our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because you believe in Christ Jesus and because you are showing true Christian love toward other Christians. And then in verse 9, he picks up the prayer. Since we heard about you, we have never missed you in our prayers. We're asking God that you may see things as it were from his point of view by being given spiritual insight and understanding. We also pray that your outward lives, which men see, may bring credit to your master's name and that you being uh, that you bring joy to his heart by bearing genuine Christian fruit and that your knowledge of God may grow yet deeper. As you live this new life, we pray that you will be strengthened from God's boundless resources so that you will find yourselves able to pass through any experience and endure it with courage. You will even be able to thank God in the midst of pain and distress because you are privileged to share the lot of those who are living in the light. Um, I've always found over my years of being a Christian tremendous inspiration in listening to the prayers of those people who have walked with the Lord for many years. And I can think back uh, to the first church that I was part of where uh, a Dutchman used to pray, and my goodness, when he prayed, the whole place was moved. He usually ended up in tears, as most of us did as well. In the second church that I was involved with, it was an Irishman. Sounds a bit like a joke, doesn't it? A Dutchman, an Irishman. But it was an Irishman who just prayed his heart out, and it just used to move me deeply. Imagine being able to sit in on the prayers of the early apostles. That would be quite something to behold, wouldn't it? 
Well, actually, we don't have to imagine it because in many instances, these prayers are recorded for us in the New Testament. And it's not the length of them as you read them since most of them are relatively brief. Lifeless, lengthy, wearisome prayers, they are not. They are short, punchy, and powerful. Actually, I remember somebody once talking to me about a person who prayed very, very long prayers in their prayer meeting. And they commented and said for the first two minutes they prayed with them, for the second two minutes they prayed for them, and for the final two minutes they prayed against them. <laughs> Paul's prayers weren't like that. They're, they're, they're gripping. Listening to Paul's prayers allows us to see something of his values and his passions. I suspect the Spice Girls would say of Paul's prayer, Paul, we hear what you want, what you really, really want. Because he just pours out his values and his passions. Note he starts with thanksgiving. Enter into the presence of the Lord, Psalm 100 says, with the password of thank you. And Paul's prayer spills over with thanksgiving. In verses 9 through 11, Paul outlines five things that he's asking God for. Now, as you look at the passage that I put up, and I'm wondering if you could put that back up for me, Hamish, the verse uh, 9 through 11. As you go through that passage, you'll see five that's where Paul is saying, I pray that. And there are five things that he's asking God for. So in verse 9, we are asking God that. In verse 10, we pray also that and that and that. And in verse 11, we pray that. So when you find those little words, you want to underline them in your Bible or color them in or whatever you do because it gives you an insight into what it is that Paul's actually praying for. So let's have a look at these I pray that's. Verse 9, we pray that you may see things as it were from his point of view by being given spiritual insight and understanding. That's the first thing. Verse 10, and that your outward lives, which men see, may bring credit to your master's name. And that you may bring joy to his heart by bearing genuine Christian fruit. And that your knowledge of God may grow deeper. And then in verse 11, we pray that you'll be strengthened from God's boundless resources so that you will find yourselves able to pass through any experience and endure it, uh, and endure it with joy. So these are the things that Paul is praying for. And I, I suspect all of those deserve a deeper examination. But I want to concentrate on the first one the one from verse 9, because I think that request is actually the spring from which the other four flow naturally as a stream. So that first that is we pray that you may see things as it were from his point of view by being given spiritual insight and understanding. The New King James Version just says that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, the difficulty with that translation is not that it's a poor one, but it's that we so often read it with our Western individualistic lenses on. So when we see, we pray that you'd understand God's will, we immediately tend to apply it to our individual concerns. What job does God want me to have? What university does he want me to attend? What's God's will perhaps regarding a possible spouse? What, what ministry does God want me to be involved with? And I'm not suggesting that God isn't interested in those things and it's wrong, them, wrong to bring them to him in prayer. I think he does care. But I would suspect that they are meant to fit into a much larger picture. 
And it's the much larger picture that Paul has in mind as he's praying when he says, I want you to see things from God's point of view. I don't think he's seeing those small things. I think he's seeing something larger. Um, D.A. Carson warns us about the inappropriate preoccupation with small details when he said, these questions like what university, what spouse, what ministry can become another form of self-centeredness no matter how piously we dress them up. Now, what I would want to say is by all means, bring before God those personal questions. He wants you to. But he doesn't want you to lose the big picture. You bring those individual concerns and they are part of a much larger picture, God's point of view, and, that it is, and that's what Paul's praying for here. J.B. Phillips calls it seeing life from God's point of view. I think it's the big picture from creation right through to new creation. Gregory Beale says it's the unalterable redemptive historical plan N.T. Wright claims that Paul is praying that we will have an understanding of the whole saving purpose in Christ. So Paul is actually trying to paint for the Colossians a very, very big picture. And you can see it in verse 27 when he says, I want you to understand the full wonder and splendor of his secret plan for the sons of men. Not, not what university you're going to go to, what job are you going to have, but the whole secret purpose of God's plan for the sons of men. Paul wants the Colossians and us to be caught into the big picture because we have been called to live out of a story. We live in the story and then we live out of the story. And this story is the big purpose of God from creation to new creation. The story that you live in, the story that you inhabit, fashions your identity. Len Sweet claims we have a storied identity. If the talk, by the way, of living in and out of a story is confusing, perhaps, for you, you haven't heard that kind of terminology before or very much, can I suggest you just simply change the word story and put in the word worldview? We live in and then live out of a particular way of seeing the world. We call it a worldview. You see the world in a particular sense and way, and it makes the world coherent for you. And we all have one. You don't ask the question, well, what, what story do, you know, do, do I live in a story? Do I have a worldview? The answer is, which one do you, do you have? Now, now, some of you, you know, who perhaps going to university, you say, well, Don, we're postmodern people and we've been told that big stories are simply grasps for power. And we, we, don't, we don't like big stories. We, we just create our own story. Well, quite frankly, that is a story. That is a big story. That is also a worldview. Worldviews, stories are inescapable. It's not do you have one, but which one is forming you and which one is fashioning you. If you don't choose to live in the big story that Scripture gives to us, then you will be captured by men's smaller stories. So Paul says in J.B. Phillips' translation, I want you to see things from God's point of view. Colossians chapter 2, just a little further on, he says, Be careful that nobody spoils your faith through intellectualism or high-sounding nonsense. Such stuff is, at best, founded on men's idea of the nature of the world and disregards Christ. So you either buy into God's story or you are caught by men's ideas of the nature of the world. And Paul says, at best, men's ideas. Perhaps at worst, 
some of the ideas that have blighted our history are demonic and devilish. Paul's saying you have to see the big picture from God's point of view. Colossians chapter 3, the message says, look up and be alert, see things from his perspective. Friends, too many of us as believers are lost in our own concerns, the little things, and we fail to see the big picture. Those of you who are Eagles fans, you'll know that in their album Long Road Out of Eden, there's a song called A Frail Grasp of the Big Picture. And when I saw that title, uh, I thought how accurately that describes a lot of Christians. They have a frail grasp on the big picture. You go to most Christians, I dare to say most, um, and ask them, why did Jesus die on the cross? And I suspect the vast majority would answer, so that my sins could be forgiven, so that I go to heaven when I die. And it's not wrong, but it's so shrunken and so truncated as to distort the big picture. And it displays a frail grasp of the big picture. It actually amounts to terrible ignorance. Um, Karen read my notes before I came, and she stumbled over that word ignorance. She said, whoa, that's a bit strong. And I said, uh, ignorance simply means a lack of knowledge. It doesn't mean I think people are stupid. It simply means they are ignorant of the understanding. It's not a, it's not a, a, a nasty word necessarily. I mean, I guess it can be. Actually, I remember when I was a school teacher and I had to write um, the end of year reports. There were some students over who I was so tempted to write, if ignorance is bliss, your child's going to have a very, very happy life. <laughs> of course, I was never allowed to write those sorts of things on the report. Even way back then, we had to write positive things on children's reports, which at times required and involved considerable imagination, if not downright lies. You and I know ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is just ignorance. And we should not be ignorant of God's point of view, of his big story. There's no need for ignorance because actually the scriptures make it plain. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10. God allowed us to know the secret of his plan. No reason for ignorance. And it is this. He purposes in his sovereign will that all human history shall be consummated in Christ, that everything that exists in heaven or earth shall find its perfection and fulfillment in him. This is what he said to the Colossians, ni plus ultra. It's Jesus and him alone. Nothing more than him, nothing beyond him, nothing after him. And in Colossians, Paul is saying essentially the same thing, but in a different and yet quite spectacular manner. Just a little further on from that prayer is this passage in Colossians chapter 1. It's from verse 15 to verse 20. And he says, Now Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. He existed before creation began, for it was through him that everything was made, whether spiritual or material, seen or unseen. Through him and for him also were created power and dominion, ownership and authority. In fact, every single thing was created through and for him. 
He is both the first principle and the upholding principle of the whole scheme of creation. And now he is the head of the body which is composed of all Christian people. Life from nothing began through him and life from the dead through him. And he is therefore justly called the Lord of all. It was in him that the full nature of God chose to live and through him God planned to reconcile in his own person as it were everything on earth and everything in heaven by virtue of the sacrifice of the cross. Paul's telling these people there is nothing beyond Jesus. This is, this is him. This is, this is the fullness. This is the freedom. And those verses are among the most important Christological passages in the entire New Testament and rank right up there with John's prologue in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 and Hebrews chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Those passages are magnificent in their description of Jesus. Actually, it's thought by many scholars that Paul was actually quoting an ancient hymn or perhaps an, an ancient creed, that, that what he's saying here wasn't original with Paul, but that he's quoting something that all Christians um, either sang or said. And quite frankly, it's remarkable that these things are being sang and said within three decades of the cross makes a mockery of liberal scholars who say the ideas of Jesus' deity were introduced hundreds of years later by, by disciples, by overzealous disciples. Within 30 years of Jesus' death, the Christians are saying this and believing this about Jesus. This Christological gem is bookended by two passages that have to do with what he did. So verse 13 says, We must never forget that he rescued us from the powers of darkness and reestablished us in the kingdom of his beloved Son, that is, in the kingdom of light, for it is by his Son alone that we've been redeemed and had our sins forgiven. That's the first bookend. Then there's this wonderful passage about who Jesus is, and then it finishes in verse 21 and 22. and says, And you yourselves, who were strangers to God, and in fact, through the evil things that you had done, his spiritual enemies, he's now reconciled through you through the death of his body on the cross. Now, if we only had the two bookends, if we didn't have that Christological passage, if we only had the two bookends, we might be reduced or we might come to the place where we actually did reduce Jesus' mission to die on the cross to save me from my sins so that I could go to be with him forever in heaven. But it's not what we have. We've got those two bookends of what he did, but in the middle, these five verses of who he is, and it's about Christ's supremacy and preeminence. And the basic structure of these, of these verses is, firstly, Christ's supremacy and preeminence over the first creation. That's verses 15 and 17. Christ's supremacy and preeminence over the already but not yet renewed creation, what he started to do, that's verse 18, and then Christ's supremacy and preeminence over the ultimate new creation, verses 19 to 20. So in these verses, we have a big picture from very start to very finish. Paul is saying, I need you to see Christ's point of view. And then he outlines it for them as it is centered in the supremacy and preeminence of Jesus. This is the big picture. So what I want to do briefly is look more closely at it. It starts in verse 15 and says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, you can't read that language without immediately being taken back to hear echoes of and reflections of Genesis chapter 1 where man is made in the image of God. 
At that first creation, humanity is the climax of God's creative activity. And that first Adamic couple are intended to be kings and priests who would be God's agent for extending the harmony and peace of the garden right out over all the earth until the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Their first failure, that that couple's first failure, meant the reflection of that image and the purpose and mission became clouded and distorted. The image is defaced, defiled, and distorted. God doesn't give up on his program, though, and he chooses Abraham's seed, who become, in a sense, the corporate Adam, who are to bear his image and take up his mission, to be a light to the Gentiles and to show all people what it is to be a people who are after God's image and walk in his ways. And just as the first Adam failed, the corporate Adam also failed. Israel failed. Then comes Jesus, the last the last. Uh, Adam, in the perfect image of God. He embraces not just the image, but the mission, and he did what the first Adam and the corporate Adam failed to do. So in Christ's generation and geographical location, people saw and heard the image of God, for it walked among them, it talked to them, and it demonstrated divine compassion upon them. The servant of God who was the light. So made in the image of God, then it says in verse 15 also, firstborn over all creation. Now this doesn't mean, as some have construed it to mean, that Jesus is part of creation, just that he's prior to us in sequence. It doesn't mean he's God's first created being, as some of the cults claim him to be. J.B. Phillips captures the Greek meaning when he says, he existed before creation began. Williams translates, he is the firstborn son who existed before anything was created. And the Living Bible says, he existed before God made anything at all. Remember Jesus talking to the Pharisees and he said, before Abraham was, I am. Well, they understood that. They took up stones and said, that's impossible. You cannot be Jehovah the great I am. You're barely 50 years of age. Are you saying and, and, and Jesus, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. He was before creation. And, and verse 16 says, And by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him. This echoes John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made by him, and without him was nothing made that it was made. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 also says, Through the Son God made the world. This is a claim, not just that he's part of creation and prior to most of it, but that he's responsible for it, that he made it. He is before all, he preceded all, he created all. There's nothing outside his creative power, from the smallest subatomic particles to the wonders of the DNA helix to the majestic Himalayas to the largest and most expansive galaxies. He created them. Nothing made that was made. Not only is he prior to creation and the power and agent behind creation, he's its end and its purpose. It's all for him. Things were created not just through him, but for him. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10. Everything that exists on heaven and earth shall find its perfection and fulfillment in him. This is the message to the Colossians. Paul is saying there's nothing beyond Jesus. When these people come and try and tell you that fullness and freedom lies beyond them, don't believe it. 
Everything that you see was made by him and for him. And he's, it's, it's all about him. Romans eleven thirty six 36 in the New English Bible goes, he's the source, the guide, and the goal of all that is. Verse 17 says, he's before all things, and in, in him all things consist or hold together. Not only did he create it, but he is the upholding and sustaining power of creation. Jesus isn't like some manufacturer and of consumer goods, you know, when they make them and they have pretty much no more ongoing concern or input into the product once it's gone out of the factory. These goods are made to function without any ongoing dependence on the manufacturer. The idea that God created the world and then basically let it run by itself is a, is a false doctrine called deism. It's not what the Bible teaches. It says that he created it, and Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says he upholds it by the word of his power. That word uphold it, by, by the way, is the same word that's used when Simon the Cyrene comes and bears Jesus' cross. He was carrying it and couldn't carry it, and they grabbed this guy and says, you, you hold it. He bears it up moment by moment. And it's because of that sustaining power that we have a cosmos and not a chaos. It's due to his sustaining power that everything stays in place, that the earth remains the same distance from the sun, neither cooking or freezing us, that the, that the regulations of night and day and that the seasons can be trusted. You know, the Bible teaches that if he withdrew his word, if he withdrew that sustaining power, the world wouldn't simply run down until it ran out of batteries. It would be more like unplugging your TV. It would just go black. He sustains it by the word of his power. The Moffat translation says he's prior to all and all things cohere in him. He makes the world coherent. And can I be bold enough to say without Jesus, the world's incoherent. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Worldviews that leave out Jesus struggle to put meaning and purpose into people's lives. That's why I was saying last week about hope. The gospel comes with a word of hope that says there's a story underneath creation. It started here. It's heading here. It's the big picture. You lose the big picture and you just get lost in the details. And then people in our culture struggle with meaning, struggle with purpose. You can't leave him out and have coherence. So in verse 15 to 17, we see Jesus supreme and preeminent over the first creation. In verse 18, we see not only did Jesus initiate the first creation, he initiated a new creation. So it says, and now behold, he's the head of the body, which is composed of all Christian people. Life from nothing began from him, that's first creation. Now life from the dead, that's the second and new creation, began through him. And he is therefore justly called Lord of all. You know, the ancient Jewish people had two stages in terms of the way they saw history. There is what they called the present age, which is marked by evil, rebellion, by disease, by sickness, by disappointment, by disillusionment. If you want to see the effects of sin, go to your dictionary and look up all the words that begin with dis. Dysfunctional, disappointment, disillusionment disease. That's the world that we presently live in. Then they understood that Yahweh would come, break into this present age, and initiate the new age. And on that 
break-in, the last day, they called it, there would be the resurrection from the dead. Remember the conversation that Martha had with Jesus over Lazarus when Jesus challenges Martha and said, do you believe I can raise him from the dead? And Martha essentially says, yes, Lord, I, I know that he'll be raised on the last day. That was the Jewish understanding. The present age, the break-in of Yahweh, the end of that age, the resurrection of the dead, the new age. What happened in Jesus is that Jesus reached back into the present age and was raised from the dead. So now into this present age, we've got resurrection. Something has transpired. Something has changed. The new age that was promised there has now broken into our world and you and I as followers of Jesus have been ushered into something new. The book of Hebrews says that those who are believers have tasted something of the powers of the age to come. Now theologians call this period where things have started but they haven't reached their consummation, the now but not yet. Something started Remember that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. When we quote it, we always say, if any man is in Christ, he is therefore a new creature. The literal Greek simply says, any man in Christ, new creation. It's, it's started. It's begun in him. Now, you and I don't have our resurrected bodies yet, but our hope, based on what he has said, is it's started. The renewal has started. We are now presently involved in new creation and it will be consummated. That's why Paul says in Galatians, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is new creation and it's begun in Jesus. A new humanity has begun. It has emerged out of the old humanity. It's a community of resurrection. It's called the church and he's Lord over it. New creation is here and growing but not yet in its fullness. In Colossians chapter 1, 19 and 20, we see Jesus supreme and preeminent over what will ultimately be. So we see Jesus supreme and preeminent over the old creation, supreme and preeminent in what he has started but isn't already complete, and then finally, he will be Lord of all that comes and that will be complete, the, the ultimate new creation. Listen to the message translation. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. He's supreme at the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, uh, animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. Wow. This is a little more than your sins being forgiven and you going to heaven. That's included, but it's a small part of a massive picture. In these handful of verses, Paul, through this Christological hymn or creed, has taken us from original creation right through to final consummation to the new Christian. And he's using this wide-angle lens to say, this is God's perspective. I'm really praying that you'll be captured by this big perspective, by this big story. And I hope that you can see that Paul meant for us to see far more than simply, as wonderful as it is, than simply people being rescued from sin so that they can go to heaven when they die. This is nothing less than the renewal of all things. Do you remember the Christmas hymn that we sing? 
Isaac Watts, as far as the curse is found, he says, redemption will run as far as the curse is found. Well, listen, it wasn't only mankind that was cursed. At the failure, the earth is cursed. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you. You'll labor it and it will not yield to you. Because it also was brought into the futility that came when the Adamic couple failed. And Jesus says, I'm going to sort that. I'm going to fix it as far as the curse is found. Scott McKnight says, Christ's mission is nothing less than cosmic reconciliation. Let me read, as we come to a close, Romans chapter 8, verse 19 through 23. This is the Living Bible. And it also sums up this massive story, this big picture. For all creation is waiting patiently and hopefully for that future day when God will resurrect his children. For on that day, thorns and thistles, sin and death and decay, the things that overcame the world against its will at God's command will all disappear and the world around us will share in the glorious freedom from sin which God's children enjoy. For we will know that even the things of nature, like animals and plants, suffer in sickness and death as they await this great event. And even we Christians, although we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, that's the now but not yet, also grown to be released from pain and suffering. We too wait anxiously for that day when God will give us our full rights as his children, including the new bodies that he's promised us, bodies that will never be sick again and will never die. I know, it seems to me at least anyway, I don't know whether it feels like this to you, but over the past probably three, five years, I've hammered this because I'm trying to move our picture from I get to go to heaven when I die. A kind of almost mocking, I don't mean it in a horrible way, but that little children's song, you know, somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place for those who trust him and obey. I'm sorry, but it's not good theology. The kids might like to, love to sing it, but it's really, really bad theology because there's no place in outer space. It's here on earth, renewed under his wonderful touch, where we, followers of Jesus with resurrected bodies, will get to experience the beauty, the awesomeness of creation. That's the big story. And it's all about him. It's all centered in him. He is the Lord over it all. Hence, Paul writing to the church at Colossians says, don't let somebody sell you a little story that is, that is beyond him because there's nothing beyond this. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, all human history will be consummated in Christ. Everything that exists in heaven and earth shall find its perfection and fulfillment in him. There was nothing before him, there's nothing beyond him. There's nothing without him. Without this picture, we are simply left to, to do the best we can with men's ideas of the nature of this world, with, with people's perspective, with worldviews that leave God out. And as much as they promise hope, they don't deliver. If you want one example, you take communism. When Marx introduced the Communist Manifesto, people bought into it big time, right across the world, in, in not just in Russia and China, but in the West as well. It was seen as offering hope and equality. Remember George Orwell's Animal Farm? All of the animals will be equal. Only we tragically found out that some animals were more equal than others. And communism didn't change the world, it just 
It just emphasised what the world is without God. And every worldview that pops up, and they pop up with some degree of regularity, telling us that we don't need God, that we can do it ourselves. Friends, if you believe that, then you've, you've, got, you've had your head in the sand for the last year at least, as you look around and see a world functioning without Christ. And it's a mess. It's crazy. Paul is inviting us to put our hope in a big picture that runs from creation to new creation. Without that, we'll be stuck in worldview made by men. Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. These men are heading for utter destruction and the world is the limit of their horizons. Worldviews that are just limited to, to, to what we have here. And then he goes on and says, our outlook goes beyond this world to the hopeful expectation of the Saviour who will come from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will remake these wretched bodies of ours to resemble his own glorious body by that power of his which makes him the master of everything that is. Friends, this is our story. This is our song. Nick, would you come? This is the big picture Paul wants us to see and then live in and out of that picture. This is the story that's to form our identity and motivate our actions. And this morning, my goal is simply to get you, lift your head up. And I know that's hard sometimes. Sometimes when we're caught in the midst of sickness or pain or disappointment or disillusionment and, or confusion, it's really hard to lift our heads and look up. But in the midst of your small details, there's a big picture. And Jesus is taking your small details and putting it in, your big, in, in his big picture. That's why we have hope. That's why we can stand and sing, this is my story and this is my song. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.